And so this morning, we are clearly not in the Gospel of Matthew. We'll be looking at the story of Rahab in, um, <clears throat> in Joshua 2. Strong and courageous. Uh, we're going to be reading the story again. It was just read wonderfully to us, but we'll be reading it as we go through. So if you want to uh, follow along, it should be on pages uh, 178 and 79 in the Bible there and the few in front of you. Um, here's a quick, uh, oops, I guess I got to turn this on. Um, quick outline, the background, choose you this day or night, a costly choice, and then grace extended. So we're going to work through those, um, through this story together. Now everybody loves a good story. Uh, stories are all over the place for us. And, and this one of Rahab is a good one. There is uh, intrigue. There's some suspense. There's a hint of naughtiness here. There's an ethical dilemma. So there would have been a lot to entertain the folks of old, the Israelites, as they gathered around the campfire to talk about this story. And, and yet here it is in holy text because there's a profound uh, theological import to this story as well. Now, the story's a little bit jarring in, in the book of Joshua. The, chapter 1 is all about Joshua telling him to be strong and courageous, he'll have good success, and be the guy to lead your people and encouraging him not to be fearful. And so after that kind of a rah-rah a chapter, we'd maybe expect that they would just attack his, uh, Jericho, right? That chapter 6 would actually follow chapter 1. But instead, here we have this story of a Canaanite woman, a strong and courageous woman herself, a Canaanite who's a representative for her people. So as Israel was supposed to follow Joshua, so the, the Jerichoites should have followed Rahab. But we have to remember, this book was written to the Israelites, and so this story would have had a lot of lessons for them. It would have had lessons, say, for how an outsider outside of Israel could become an insider. It would have had a lesson um, that informed them about the coming uh, or about the event of the destruction of Jericho, that it wasn't just a mean, angry God committing genocide, but actually it was holy war, the warrior God defeating committed rebellious enemies against him. It would have been a lesson also of how this colorful woman could have ended up in the lineage of David and of the Lord Jesus. It would have been um, a great example to them of what it meant to be strong and courageous. And at the end of the book, Joshua ends the, uh, the book by telling the Israelites, choose this day who, whom you will serve whether it's going to be idols or the Lord. And that's what Rahab does. She chooses. And so she becomes an example of, of choosing her allegiance, being strong and courageous, the admonition of chapter 1, choosing whom she was going to be uh, loyal to in chapter 24. Rahab is the example for Israel of both of those admonitions. So it's a powerful story. 
But first, I want to um, just briefly recount the history of Israel. So we're all kind of on the same page, how we got to this point uh, in the story. If you remember uh, many centuries before this, the, um, the Jacob and his sons went down to Egypt because of a famine. And they were able to stay there because one of Jacob's sons, Joseph, was a very high official in the land, actually the number two guy, vice president, so to speak. Um, and so they were there as honored guests. But as the years went by and that Pharaoh died and then Joseph died, and the honored guests slowly became slaves. And life became very hard for them. Until the point the text says that God remembered his promises. Now, it wasn't that he had forgotten. That's not what remember means in, in the books of Moses. It means that, that what was on the back burner kind of, kind of bubbling a little bit gets pulled forward to boil. That it's time for God to act. And he, he brought his man Moses, and they had all of those plagues and all of that uh, conflict, and, he, and Moses was the, the deliverer that God chose to lead his people out of Egypt. And, and you remember he brought them out and they split the Red Sea and they came through on dry land and they came into the wilderness. And there they worshiped God with the fullness of heart and complete devotion, right? Not, not so much, not so much. It was one rebellion after another. And, and at one point, Moses sent 12 spies into the land to check it out so that they could know what it was that the land that they were to conquer. And ten of them came back and they said, we can't do this. They're too big. We're too small. And the whole nation rebelled. And it was so severe that God said, okay, the generation that, that came out of Egypt, you're going to die in the wilderness. I'm going to take your children in. I'm not going to break my covenant, but, but this generation is not going to go. And so for 40 years, they wandered around while that generation died off. And then at the end of that 40 years, they came up to this place called the Acacia Grove. That's what Shatim means, the Acacia Grove. So it would, have been, um, it would have been just a grove of trees somewhere there in the Jordan Valley on the west side of the Jordan. That was well known. And actually it has a place of significance that I'll get to in a minute. And it's from there that they are are now intent on entering the land. Moses is gone, Aaron is gone, Miriam is gone, all of the big figures of the Exodus generation are gone. And Joseph, uh, Joseph sorry, Joshua is now their leader. So that's where we've come to. And some of those events are very important as we read this story for figuring out um, how this comes together. <clears throat> So let's look at the story uh, together. Let me read verses 1 through 3. And Joshua the son of Nun sent two men secretly from Shittim as spies, saying, Go to view the land, especially Jericho. And they went and they came into the house of a prostitute whose name was Rahab and lodged there. And it was told to the king of Jericho, Behold, men of Israel have come here tonight to search out the land. And then the king of Jericho sent to Rahab, saying, Bring out the men who have come to you, who have entered your house, for they have come to search out the land. Well, it wasn't such a secret, was it? But right away the intrigue starts, doesn't it? Because the Acacia Grove, Shittim, is actually the place of the last rebellion of Israel, the previous generation. 
And you know what they did there? If you look back at, at Numbers 25, it says, while they were there, they prostituted themselves with, with the women of Midian. So you, you have the similarity of, of what's happening, right? They leave here and go to a prostitute named Rahab, but that happened before at the Acacia Grove. And so is it going to happen all again? Is the new generation going to fail and be, uh, uh, be adulterous and, and faithless like the old generation was? Right away the story starts with a little bit of intrigue and suspense, doesn't it? It says that Joshua secretly sent spies now that can be that has been made a lot of that that he was really surreptitious about it, but but that word doesn't occur anywhere else in the Old Testament, so it's kind of hard to know exactly what it is. There's no other word to compare it to, and Richard Hess, who's one of the best of the of the Joshua commentators, he actually teaches down at Denver Seminary, says it's probably more something like uh, skillfully or strategically that he sent those two spies out with a specific strategic plan it's not like one morning a israelite wife woke up and wondered where her husband bob went for the next week and a half you know it wasn't that kind of a secret it was more go out and and this normal procedure of reconnaissance and find out about jericho um he sent two spies so there again there's a link to that story that i just told you right Two spies going out from the same place. It's what's going to happen here? Is this going to be a success? Or is it going to be a debacle like it was 40 years ago? Then they come to the house of Rahab in Jericho. Now Jericho was a fortress city on the Jordan River Valley floor. Uh, it was an ancient city, probably maybe a few football fields in length. Here's a, here's a picture of it from UNESCO. That's the tell or the mound that the ancient city of Jericho would have been built on. So not huge. Now Jericho claims to be, and it probably is, the oldest inhabited city in the world. Isn't that interesting? And it commanded the entry into the hill country of Canaan. So you can see on the back side of that picture, the hills go up. If you're going to get into Canaan, into the hill country of Canaan, from that area, you're going to go through Jericho. And so this fortress city was the gateway into the country that the Lord had promised his people, Israel. Here's an artist's rendition of what the city might have looked like with its double walls. The brown houses in the outer ring would have been more um, the poorer and uh, the expendable people. And those behind the second wall would have been the, the more elite. Well, perhaps it was the broad plain because Jericho sits on the floor of the Jordan Valley and so Israel was over on this side and they would have had a, those two spies would have had a long way to go across a flat plain and, and they must have been seen because their, their stealth didn't work too well, did it? They were quickly detected. Um, as soon as they got to Rahab's house, it was told to the king of Jericho. Now this would have been, Jericho was the little city-state. That's where most of the uh, cities were in Canaan. They, they were individual, and so the king would have been just the king of Jericho, not king of the whole nation. And he's told and he knows that they are at Rahab's place. Well, after the, the spy mission of 40 years ago that had 
uh, gone so poorly. If the spies would have been captured here, I, I think that any talk of being strong and courageous probably would have ended right there, right? This place is jinxed. We can't get in. Forget it. Let's go back to Egypt. And so a lot is riding here on this story of Rahab. Why a prostitute's house? That's troubled a lot of good people over the years. Why would a person like this become such an example? Why would she become such a, a hero figure? And some have tried to explain it away. Josephus, the Jewish historian, says that she was an, an innkeeper, and, and certainly she was. Certainly she was. But the, the biblical words are very clear, especially the New Testament, that she was a prostitute. And she ran an inn, which in the ancient world, those were not great places. We're, we're not talking five-star hotels. If you think more of like Master of the House and Les Mis, you know, that kind of thing, or it's kind of sorted and... People could come and go. Men could come in and keep their anonymity. Information could be given or sold. You could come and go without being known. It was that kind of place. But she was clearly, clearly one of the people who would live in the outer ring, the other side of the wall, you might say. That was who she was. But there's a deeply theological reason that comes out as to why they went to Rahab's house, and that is that God was after Rahab. That she understood. And she was responding to the word that she had heard. And if God was after Rahab, and Rahab was a prostitute living in her in-house at Jericho, then that is where God's messengers were going to go. She was going to be the recipient, the most unlikely recipient, of God's grace imaginable. A Gentile, a Canaanite, an unmarried woman, and a prostitute. That is about as underclass as you can get. And yet what a remarkable story of God's grace we have here. And very importantly to the story, despite that, despite the setting of coming out of the Acacia Grove where the immorality of, of Israel was, was uh, pronounced in, in Numbers 25, there's no hint of impropriety in this story. That's very important. Um, because it plays into the plot line significantly. So, choose you this day or night, as the case might be. There were two knocks on, on uh, Rahab's door that night. There were two sets of messengers that came to her. There were two kings represented by those messengers. And one set came from the king of Jericho. And he wanted the other set of messengers. He wanted to interrogate them, and he wanted to kill them. It says twice in, um, in these verses that they knew that they had come to search out the land and he wanted to put an end to that. He wanted to find out a little bit about Israel itself. And that is Rahab's king. That's the king that claims her allegiance. 
is this king of Jericho. The other king who's represented is the king of Israel, and she even knows his name. She uses it four times following in verse 8 and following. It's the Lord. And his representatives were actually in the house at the very moment that the king of Jericho's representatives came. She had taken them, and she had hidden them under the flax on the roof. Now, flax uh, was a very important product in those times. It linseed, and it was used for oil, and then it was woven together for linen. And so this was an important product. Rahab was a businesswoman. She had multiple enterprises going. She would have had a family. We see the family there, the father's household mentioned, that, and that family would have had land somewhere that they would have been able to grow and harvest. And so um, they brought that, put it on her roof to dry out, and, and the roof was on the wall, the first wall that separated the, um, the first ring of the wall that separated Jer- Jericho from the outside. So the men were hiding under that flax, and, um, and Rahab then has this conversation with the men of Israel, or I'm sorry, with the men of Jericho. And we can't miss this point. Rahab has to make a decision between these two sets. She has to make a decision between these two kings. One is going to be a decision of loyalty, and one is going to be a decision of enmity. She does not have any middle ground here. It's treason to hide the spies. And as she's going to explain, it's terror to face the Lord. And that's the context of her lie here in verses 4 and 5. Look at that with me. The woman had taken the two men and hidden them, and she said, True, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I do not know where the men went. Pursue them quickly, for you will undertake them. Now, there have been a number of commentators through the years who have said, that well, these spies from Jericho were just kind of gullible dolts, and it's actually a little made-up story because they wouldn't have done that. They would have searched the house. I don't think so. Let me paraphrase this lie a little bit um, as to what I think that they would have heard. She would have said something like this. Look, guys, I'm a, I'm a prostitute. Yes, they came here, but I didn't know that they were Israelites. Uh, it makes sense, though, given they're camped at the Acacia Grove, which is their point of great immorality. Here they were. And, and they came here. They paid me, and they left. I don't know where they went. They hoped to get out of town before curfew and before the gates were shut. Hurry, you can probably catch them. It's a totally believable and clever lie, isn't it? And there's been lots of debate over the years um, about this and about lying. Was uh, Was she justified in lying to save life? Is it ever okay to lie? It's a bit of an ethical dilemma, like I mentioned. And that's a good one. It's a good discussion to have. The Bible is pretty clear on lying. It's even one of the Ten Commandments, isn't it? Don't lie. 
And yet here she is saying this. It's an important, interesting topic. But to be honest with you, I think it misses the point in this story. Because Rahab's lie in this story was the way she commits treason. She had to be untrue to somebody. She was going to betray someone. And irreparably, she severs her link to her king and to her people with this lie. She's almost to the point of no return. This lie is one of a complete loss of her life as she knew it so that she could follow the king of Israel. She couldn't serve God that day if she didn't betray her old king. That's a lot of, that's a narrative art, isn't it? So as those Israelites are gathered around the campground, at a campfire, if they want to talk about lying and, and this controversial lie of hers, it's going to inevitably force them right back to the point would they have had the commitment and the courage and the faith to do what she did and to leave her old life in order to follow the king of Israel? Could they match her strong and courageous obedience and the very point of the ethical dilemma becomes the very point of a call to commitment. That's pretty good storytelling, I think. So she told this totally clever, believable lie and one that she would have been killed instantly for if she had been caught at it. Nothing in the story, again, suggests any impropriety, but the suggestion of it of her to the spies about it totally convinced them. And it was cleverly made them decide quickly, right? Oh yeah, you can search the house if you want. But they just went out the gate and you're going to miss them if you do. And so the spies were forced to make a quick decision. Brilliant, brilliant woman. And so the spies, uh, I mean, I'm sorry, the men of Jericho run out and the spies of Israel are secure Uh, Her treason is almost complete. She could uh, still change her mind, call them back. Oh, look, look, look what I found. These rascals, they hid under the flax up here. Here they are. But she wasn't about to do that. She controlled the moment, didn't didn't she? The hidden spies were under her control, literally life and death. The scurrying spies off outside of Jericho were also under her control on a wild goose chase. But the price was that she was a woman without a country. She had all control and none. She had betrayed her king and her people, but she didn't yet know if the Lord would accept her. And so at that moment, she ascended up to an audience with the Lord's men on her roof, probably with her heart beating as to what would happen. Would she be accepted? And so she has this costly choice ahead of her. Uh, Rahab is spoken of as an example of faith in the New Testament. In Hebrews 11, she's spoken of. And in James 2, how could it be that a woman of this nature and of this lying and 
who she, how could she be lifted up as such an exemplary figure of faith? And it's because of this speech that she gives. Look at verses 8 and following with me. Before the men lay down, she came up to them on the roof and said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted, and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. And now then, please swear to me by the Lord that as I have dealt kindly with you, you also will deal kindly with my father's house. And give me a sure sign that you will save alive my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and deliver our lives from death. And the men said to her, Our life for yours, even to death. If you do not tell this business of ours, then when the Lord gives us the land, we will deal kindly and faithfully with you. What a profound speech. She stands there and gives the Israelites a history lesson. And it's their history. She knows. They knew who Sion and Og were. They were the most powerful kings on the west of the Jordan. And they knew when they got destroyed by the Israelites. A few weeks ago we talked about Balaam and how, how Balak, the king of Moab, knew that when they killed Sihon and Og, he was totally out of his league because Sihon and Og had, had subserviated him. And they, their hearts melted. She understood who the Lord was. She uses His covenant name four times. You see, that's the Lord there in all caps. That is the, the covenant name of God. He's not just another tribal deity, and she understands it. He's a deliverer who had delivered his people out of Egypt, who had delivered him from their enemies, who had delivered them through the Red Sea. She knew about the Red Sea. And it had happened over 40 years before. Probably before she was even born. And yet they knew it. And she knew it, and she knew what it meant. She understood the trajectory of this story. That there was going to be another water parting because they were on that side of the Jordan and she was on this side of the Jordan and they were going to come here and she knew that the Jordan wouldn't keep them because the Red Sea didn't keep them. She knew that there would be another people defeated and she knew that it would be her people. She saw clearly what was happening. God's past deliverance of his people, his past faithfulness of, to his people was going to be repeated and she wanted to be on the right side of history. She recognized the faithfulness of God. She understood how He works. She knew what it meant. And she was willing to pay any cost to be on His side. But she also rightly understood her people, didn't she? Look at verses uh, 9. All the inhabitants of the land melt away. Verse 11, as soon as we heard it, our hearts melt. 
And then the report of the spies at the very end in verse 24, all the inhabitants of the land melt away. She knew there was no hope in Canaan. They were terrified. They'd shut up their, house, their, their cities against the Israelites. And she knew that there was not going to be any salvation coming from her people. Again, the narrative art, isn't it interesting that the first chapter is totally devoted to, to kind of bolstering up Joshua and the people. Be strong and courageous. You can do it. Don't be scared. And yet, what we find is that it's on the other side of the Jordan that there's the real dread and the real terror of facing the Lord. That the scared ones are actually those who oppose God. It's interesting. And she changed her worldview. Now, in the ancient Near East, uh, when you lived in an area, you had your, your regional tribal deity. John uh, pointed this out this morning as we talked about judges, that, that Baal or, or Baal was the deity of that land. And so if you brought your army and defeated another army, that meant that your god was stronger than their god. But Rahab totally jettisons that kind of territorial tribal view. She says, we know, or I know, that your God, the Lord your God, is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. He's the sole deity over all deities. He overrules mine. And her whole worldview changed as she heard the story of Israel and of Israel's God, and she understood who he was. And actually, these words um, repeat and reflect back to the words of Moses in Deuteronomy 4, where he says the same thing. It's a good thing if you're thinking of God in the same way that Moses did. And she does. So she was ready. For Joshua 24. That night as she stood there, she was ready to choose that night whom she would serve. She put away all of the false allegiances and she chose to follow and embrace the God of Israel. And at great cost, everything to her. She came to meet God with no reservations through his representatives. And I think that, uh, that this stunning woman provides an example for us that's worth thinking about for a few moments this morning. We can pause. But, but also later, in some of the, the questions at the bottom of your worship handout are designed to help you think about this through the week too, that this kind of all-in, whatever-the-cost following that she exemplifies for us, I think illustrates some of the things that Jesus said to his followers, which hopefully includes us. To defeat sin, remember what he said? If your right hand offends you or your right eye causes you to stumble, cut it off. Pluck it out. Now, don't get, don't get caught up with Jesus' hyperbole. He's not, he's not really advocating dismemberment. He's speaking in, in hyperbolic or, or over-the-top language to say whatever you have to do, whatever the cost, do it to get sin out of your life. What a great example 
Rahab is of the complete radical abandonment to do that, to step away from the hopeless, rebellious society that she was in. Or think of when Jesus told his followers that if you want to follow me, you have to take up your cross and follow me. What he was actually saying is that you have to die to yourself and the life that you knew in order to follow me and the life that I give you. Again, Rahab, an incredible example of what she did to pay that cost so that she could be a follower of the Lord. It's worth thinking about, I think. Reading the story with those words in mind, because, you know, some... We, we, tend, we tend, maybe I'm speaking for myself, but I don't think so. We tend to want to serve two masters, don't we? We kind of want to have both allegiances. Jesus warned against that too, didn't he? We want to try to find some maybe comfortable mix of tolerating sin in our lives while still pursuing Jesus some, or, or maybe giving him some of our time and some of our devotion. And I think pondering Rahab is a good idea because she didn't do that. She was strongly, courageously all in on this. And she provides a great example for us in what it means to follow the Lord. Well, she is at this point... um, where grace is extended to her. Uh, It's such great storytelling. The spies, both sets of spies, utterly in her control until they aren't. And as she comes up onto the roof and she talks with these two spies from Israel, the question in her mind is, will they extend grace to me? Will they extend their covenant grace to me? Can I take my place in God's people because I pretty much cut it off with my own? And so she asks them, will you deal kindly with me as I have dealt kindly with you? Now it's so interesting, that word kindly is actually the word, you've heard it said several times before, for covenant faithfulness or steadfast love. It's chesed. It's it's the word for God's faithful loyalty to the covenant, to the agreement that he made with Israel of how they would live together. I will act this way to you. And he expected Israel to respond with the same loyalty and righteousness back to him. And she says, I have dealt that way with you. Will you deal that way with me? The New English translation uses the word allegiance. Will you allow Will you give me your allegiance as I have given you mine? What she's asking is not, will you be nice to me? I did a favor for you. You do one for me. I scratched your back. You scratched mine. Let us live. No, she's not asking that. She's actually far more bold. She's saying, will you allow me, a Gentile, Canaanite, unmarried woman, prostitute, become a member of God's people? Will you give me that covenant grace? She wants to be an outsider who becomes an insider. And it can only be 
by God's gracious acceptance of her. It's an amazing request, isn't it? It's bold. And look at the response there in verse 14. Our life for yours, even to death. Oh, can you just imagine the weight that went off her shoulders when she heard that? Yes, our lives are the same. Our lives for yours, even to death, you're in. And at that moment, she became her brother's keeper, that these men were now part of her people. And so she took care of them. She, she let them down over the, the uh, wall, uh, I mean, through her window and out. It says there in verse 8, before the men lay down, and then she let them down by a rope through the window. I'm not sure of this, but I'm guessing that probably what happened there is this happened right at the time of the curfew and the gate closing, and so the men caught a couple hours of sleep while everything settled down. And then she let them down through the window. And as they left to go up into the hill country and hide out and then back down and across the valley floor to Joshua, they left behind the newest convert to Israel. An example of how all the Jerichoites should have responded to the same message that Rahab heard, but they did not. They closed up their hearts, they closed up their gates, they closed up their lives in enmity to the Lord instead of embracing Him as she did. But then they said, if, uh, if this is going to happen, here's what you're going to need to do. Because remember, she asked for a sure sign that you'll save alive me and my family. And so here is the sure sign. You hang this scarlet cord from your window. See that in verse 18? Behold, when we come into the land, you shall tie this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down, and you shall gather into your house your father and mother, your brothers and all your father's household. And if anyone goes outside, that's their problem. We're not going to make any distinctions. You go outside, and you're going to die. But if you're in this house, that's our problem, and we'll keep you alive. So she hung that scarlet cord around her, I mean, from her window. And that is the sure sign. That's the proof positive that she had been extended grace. Because this is actually a Gentile Passover moment. If you think back to the Passover, the, uh, the Israelites killed a lamb and they took its blood and they put it over what? over the doorway, right? So when the angel of the Lord came in the middle of the night and he passed down in front of the houses and he looked at the entry to the house, he would see the red blood. And he said, death has already visited this house. A substitutionary death has already been made. Something died for this family and death is not going to, to touch it again. This family has been redeemed already. They're mine. And he passed over them. The same thing is happening here. As the army of Israel approaches, led by the ark, by God's very presence there on the ark, and they approach the walls of Israel in the same judgment, God looks up and sees the opening to that house in the window, and what does He see? 
the red scarlet cord. And he says, the people in this house already belong to me. And judgment won't fall there again. That's why they had to be in the house. If they're outside the house, then they're outside the place of safety and salvation. That's kind of the way he does things, right? If you think back to Noah, where was the place of safety and salvation? He had to be in the ark, right? If you think of Sodom and Gomorrah, where was the place of, of safety and salvation? You had to be out of the city. But there was a place of safety and salvation when God's judgment falls. And the same thing happens here. That place was where God said, those are my people and I will keep them safe. But here's the great news on that. It is such good news. There wasn't another sacrifice. Rahab did not have to sacrifice another animal. All she had to do was to have faith in the Creator, redeeming God, who had already offered the sacrifice. She didn't have to go back and do it again. And for us Gentiles, so many millennia later, our Passover lamb, Paul says, was sacrificed to us. We don't have to do it again. We don't have to earn this again. We just have to have faith in the one who has already done it. The creator, redeemer, God, who has already provided that for us. Our response is faith, and Rahab is our example of it. That's why she's listed in the New Testament. That's why she's of the lineage of Jesus. It's a little bit of an aside. I haven't traced this one down for sure, but, I, but, but Jewish tradition, I believe, says that when in Matthew 1, where it lists her, her husband, her, her husband from Israel, she wasn't married until she, got, she joined Israel, was Salmon, and Jewish tradition has that Salmon was one of the two spies. I don't know if that's true, but wouldn't that be a great ending to the story? You know, that he was so impressed with Rahab that he married her. You see, for, our, for us, our safety is in a place too. It is in Christ, united with Him, part of His body as His people. And His life for ours, even to death, is the way it's happened there too. He gave His body. He gave His blood for us. His covenant faithfulness, His covenant righteousness is given to us so that we have our right standing with God. The more things change, the more they stay the same, right? What a great example this story is for us. An encouragement of how we follow our Lord Jesus. Now, there were only a few weeks. Um, oh, sorry, I forgot this one. There's a rendering. I wasn't able to find out. Uh, I think it's an old wood cutting, but I'm not sure. But... The window in the outside of the wall, up on the roof, that um, would have been facing out the army that the Lord would have seen and passed over. There were only a few weeks between this event and when the Battle of Jericho started, maybe a month or two at the very most. But what was her life like in those intervening times? I think it's helpful to think about that too because it would have been completely different. 
She now was the lady who was marked out by the scarlet cord hanging from her window. And she would have had to figure out, how am I going to answer that question without dying? That's a tough evangelism question, isn't it? She was different now from the people around her. She had to constantly be on the alert for the coming of her new king. Because they had to be in the house. And so not only did she have to be on alert, but she had to be making sure that the rest of her family realized the severity of this and that they were on alert so that when the battle ensued, they would be in the place of salvation. Her new life in that time was focused on meeting her new king when he came, when he returned to us, to her. How much more, I think, is that an example for us of how we live now waiting for the arrival or the re-arrival of our king for us? Rahab is worth pondering, I think. She is the strong and courageous woman, and she teaches us what Joshua meant when he said, Choose this day whom you will serve. Let's take a few minutes to pray and think about what God would have us learn from Rahab before we have our closing songs.